Today we talk with Madeline Blaze about the Queen of the Court, even though no one knows about her. The Many Lives of Tennis Legend Alice Marble, and it's pretty awesome. Like a sparrow building shelter with branches for its young. My mother built a nest with love for her little ones. My grandfather told her, doesn't matter what you have. The only thing you need for life is each other's helping hands. Never Welcome to another episode of Never the Empty Nest. We continue our Miami Book Fair little mini-series that we have going on here that's been really fun. And today we have Madeline Blaze on our show, specifically talking about tennis, which is so exciting, a book called Queen of the Court. But before we welcome her on, here we are, your regulars. I'm Vanessa. I'm Jackie. And I'm Nicole. And yeah, it's an interesting day. We're all in very fun spots. I am literally in the middle of rehearsal and inside a room of the theater. (laughs) And Nikki, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm just frustrated with this cold that I've had for like a month that won't go away. And I'm very annoyed. I just want to feel normal again. And that's where I'm at. I'm like stuffy and I have so much stuff going on. I haven't gone to the doctor. I have to call the doctor. It's one of those things. But other than that, I'm okay. Yeah. And it's it's post-Halloween. Um, and yeah. at least on my end, one thing that we've been talking about is how like we had, we used to have one Halloween costume and then it was Halloween. My kids have had three Halloween changes. It's like costume changes. <laughs> They're three Halloweens, um, celebration after celebration. It's been uh, hilarious. You saw the pictures, mom. But let's, let's go ahead and welcome our guest today. So Madeline Blaze, just to tell you a little bit about her, She was a reporter for the Miami Herald for a long time. Uh, She's a Pulitzer Prize winner. She now teaches at the University of Massachusetts in journalism, and she has other books. One of them is In These Girls, Hope is a Muscle, which I'm so excited to talk about because that book is very exciting. But the book that she has out now that she's going to be reading from on the 19th of this month of November at the book fair is Queen of the Court, The Many Lives of Tennis Legend Alice Marble who a lot of us don't know about, but Madeline's here to fix that. Uh, So welcome, Madeline. Thank you for joining us. Well, it's my pleasure. Uh, I love Miami, and any excuse to be in Miami or talk to people from Miami is always welcome. That's actually where I want to start. I want to start a little bit with what brought you to the Herald, and what was your time there like? I know some of your pieces from that time. uh, So if you can tell us a little bit about what brought you to Miami in the first place, to the Miami Herald. Well, it was a long time ago. Miami was a very different city than it is now. It was very sleepy. When I first drove down 95, there was still terrible traffic even back then, but you just slid off onto US 1 on a sleepy Saturday in September. There was no one around. And I ended up through misdirection, ending, ending up near um, what used to be called the Bakery Center. You could smell bread, cook, you know, in the, in the air, this and that. And people were kind of walking slowly across the street. 
And I remember thinking that this could be a very quiet place. It could be nothing more than like a, almost like a cat dozing on a windowsill in perfect year-round year temperatures. So I wasn't sure if it was for me or not. It also looked very different. The colors were extremely different. Even the building materials, all the stucco and concrete, were different from what my northern eyes were used to. I was there with a, a guy that I was dating. He later became my husband. So I did the thing you're never supposed to do. I followed a guy somewhere. And worse than that, he had recently been fired. But he got a job at the Miami News and had a wonderful time covering the courts and became, in the fullness of time, the novelist John Katzenbach, who writes books set in Miami and other places, thrillers, basically. But while I was in Miami, I remember the first time I thought I could really love Miami was a few weeks after arriving, we went to South Beach, which was just um, the Deco hotels, which are still there. Older people uh, in metal chairs uh, looking out from their porches onto the water. No one in the water. No one was around. Maybe a couple of bodybuilders on the beach, but that's it. A beautiful late September, early fall day. And I went swimming and I thought, this is just so interesting. This juxtaposition of this kind of Eastern European shtetl next to this world-class beach, and no one's even paying any attention to it. And it embodied just the kind of contradictions that journalists crave. And I thought, this could work. At the time, the Miami Herald was feeling its oats in a good way. It was expanding. It had some sense of Miami being in a state of change. If you read, I think, The Year of Dangerous Living, you learned about how Maurice Ferre, the then mayor, had a vision of making Miami much more Latin and Southern American. So he wasn't looking to the North for ratification. He had this smart idea of looking elsewhere. During all that time when I was there, it was just what everyone talks about. We had the terrible race riots, drug wars, the arrival of the Mariolitos, who were not always treated very well, as I think people in the community will now recognize. We had rampant inflation, partly due to the drug stuff, in terms of housing. When I arrived in Miami in 1976, a little 3-2 in the Gables, just a modest little house, was about thirty-five to 40000 by 1979, it was up to 110, 115. Of course, now I won't even begin to estimate what it is. But just in three years, prices had tripled. That's really amazing inflation, in real estate anyway. That's amazing. I mean, listening to you talk, obviously, we're from Miami, so so much of it rings, you know. And I always tell people, Miami in the 80s was such an interesting place because, you know, like I, I talked to my husband about, he's not from here, and he goes, he wants to go to the gas station sometimes at, after a certain hour. I'm like, you can't do that. <laughs> and part of part of you know my rules in life are ha are from having been raised in Miami in the 80s you know it didn't matter what color you were it it mattered where you were and if you slowed down for a red light or you actually stopped you were kind of a complete idiot you had to, there were all these rolling stops through certain places where people just they weren't welcoming each other back then the uh, advertising firm Bieber and Silverstein had a motto Miami see it like a native and those of us who were living there couldn't understand what they could possibly be recommending under the circumstances because it was, Edna Buchanan used to say it was the Wild West out there. There was so much crossfire. It was considered by the government, the U.S. government to be the terrorist capital of the United States. It had the highest murder rate in 1981 and 82 in the United States. It was chaos. And I know when I visit, which is, as, as I say, as often as possible for as long as possible, I'm still back in the 80s somehow, and my friends don't understand what I'm re reacting to all the time. Yeah. 
It's it's a different Miami. It's a totally different Miami. I mean, you have you have a Pulitzer and you had so many wonderful features that came out of your time in the Herald. And then there is a lot of sports writing that seems to have come after and presently. I mean, this book, The Queen of the Court, The Many Lives of Tennis Legend Alice Marble is about tennis, obviously. And I want to know, our show is about nests and uh, what that means. You know, it's about the nests we're born into and the ones we find and sports so much of the time, at least so much of the girls basketball book that came before really feels like that, right? But what led you to talk to write, to research, to do this sort of creative nonfiction journey, long-form journalism about sports, and specifically Alice Marble? That's a really good question. I have done it about other things as well, but specifically, I'll get to Alice Marble in one quick second. Let me just say about the book, In These Girls, Hope is a Muscle, that it was a book about a championship-winning girls basketball team. I wrote that as a book about a team and girls and sports. And it definitely has that concrete structure and it's what it is ostensibly about. But I also saw it as almost like a stealth primer on how to raise a daughter. So it was partly about nest when I wrote that. My daughter was six when I started. She was probably nine or 10 when I finished. And soon she was going to be entering the teenage years. And I wanted to know what were some of the ways in which you could approach girls as adolescents and give them a healthy sense of themselves. So that was part of what that book was about. It was almost like a conversation with my future mothering. Now, Alice Marble also has a very, very, very strong sports text. It follows the career of a woman who's not well known at this point in her life. Uh, Hopefully my book will change that. She was in her prime a household name. In the 1930s when she played tennis and she won Wimbledon. She made she was the first woman to make a clean sweep of Wimbledon and then later what were called the Nationals, what we call the U.S. Open today. She was as well known as the horse Seabiscuit. They used to say in Miami there were two people who were always known by one name, Castro and Edna. She was like Castro and Edna, but she was Alice throughout the press. Just Alice did this, Alice did that, and she was a person who indeed led many lives. I really wanted that to be the subtext of the, the book. Because not only was she a great tennis player, but she was a great columnist for American lawn tennis. She was considered by Billie Jean King, who she at one point coached when Billie Jean was a teenager, to be the first female sports activist, the first woman to come out in favor of equal pay for women, and also in favor of integrating the sport. I mean, that really is one of the most amazing things. We are so familiar with Serena and Venus, but you know, here's Alice Marble in 1950, sort of opening that that uh, race gate. You have a question. Hello. In this book, I am mesmerized by what I believe is the amount of research that you must have had to do and that you did. The interesting thing is that when you start reading this book, it is definitely about her. But I, and I'm sure that all readers will have the same, uh, it's inevitable, are placed in a moment in time where you can feel and and you can understand and, and you get educated on even the politics of the time. The social context, I had a great time reading everything about the Hearst Castle because I visited the Hearst Castle once and I'm never going back because of that dirt road that you so well describe, and I thought I was going to fall off. 
So it was amazing. And I think uh, I actually don't remember ever, or at least I don't remember reading a book that is so rich in the surroundings and the time and place that it took throughout the story from beginning to end. I think one of the questions arising out of that is how long did it take you to gather the research and to actually write the book? Jackie, thank you for everything you just said. You just made my day, week, year, life, I'm not sure what, but you did capture what I was trying to do. I saw this as a story of a woman who lived her life essentially in the 20th century, born in 1913, died in 1990. And she lived it as both a, in, in someone who was most famous and uh, known and uh, you know, in, at the center of power in some ways, you know, the people that she knew, the places she visited. And then, like most women, she also lived it in the shadows. And so one of the engines I used in trying to describe her life was to think about what was life like for other women in that era, too. How did she compare to the women of her time? And during her heyday, when she was the glamorous tennis player with a million outfits and a coach, a female coach who kind of owned her, which is a whole subtext of this book, she certainly... Led, led the life of Riley, as they say. But most of her life was actually like that of most women. It was far more fraught with challenges and far more easily overlooked, I think. And one of the hopes I have, I, I said to somebody that it's not that history has gotten better. History kind of stays what it is. But the telling of history has improved in recent years. It's like cars have actually improved. I'm saying something positive about the culture. And there's now much more permission and even enthusiasm about telling stories like Alice Marvel, and not just at the peak, at the pinnacle, but giving her the fullness of time as a context for her life. My hope is that it will have a life in women's studies departments, for instance, and be read by women who are interested in women's history. I hope that the tennis is not a disincentive if you say, I don't like tennis. I don't know who doesn't like tennis. If they watched the U.S. Open this past September, you have to love tennis. But that part of the book was actually the part that might have been the hardest for me in the sense that I did not have a, a ready expertise about tennis. I had to learn lots of things that people who know the sport better than I do know, kind of with their, just with their first racket. They kind of, by osmosis, they learn who Bill Tilden is, for instance, or Bobby Riggs, you know, people like that, that, that I, I kind of knew but didn't know. So I had to contextualize. It's also a very, was, and it's fighting it now, began as a very elite sport. Alice Marble, I should say, was working class from San Francisco. And her family became even more precipitously working class when she was six and her father died of injuries due to a car accident and a Model T. So her mother was left with children who were 13, 11, 10, Alice, six, and a three-year-old. And the family was pretty much thrust not into poverty, but into an eternally cash-strapped situation where the oldest boy at 13 dropped out of school to help support the family. The 11-year-old, when he got to be 13, dropped out of school. They laid floors for a living for years. The mom cleaned offices in the pre-dawn hours in San Francisco. So she came from a family where this kind of life that she led as a tennis player would have been normally not in the picture, but there were a couple of things that really made a difference. One is, to its credit, the state of California, and San Francisco in particular, believed in public tennis courts and believed in making them available to children and 
people who like tennis. So they supported the sport as a democratic enterprise way more than the East Coast. That made a huge difference. It also helps that in California, it's sunny in parts of California all the time. So they had a climate that favored year-round tennis as well. Uh, she was a great, actually, baseball player. And she made her first mark when she was 12 or 13. And she was featured in the San Francisco paper. They called her the Little Queen of Swat, and there was a picture of her in a midi dress with a, a beanie on her head, I guess, pitching, actually pantomiming what it was like to pitch at the recreational game, she, or the San Francisco Seals game she used to go to at Recreation Park. Uh, they were a minor league team. She was a kid who would catch the fall balls and then throw them back in, and she was so good that she was asked to go out in the field and, and help the players, and eventually a newspaper feature followed. And that was her first taste of fame. And it was, I think, in the family dynamic, the time when suddenly their story was changing. Something really good was happening. Something was being noticed. And in her case, she was preternaturally gifted as an athlete. She even said that. She knew she had gifts. And she went into tennis because her brother, when she was like 13 or so, gave her a racket and said, you can't have a career in baseball. You have to get realistic. This is a good game for you to learn. And at first she resisted. She thought it was a sissy sport. But then she started playing and the rest was her personal history. She's an amazing human being. I mean, what a what a just marvel of a human. I love how they in the book it says, you know, she was just as much queen of the court as queen of the pivot. I love that because she just like reinvented herself so many times. That to me is actually you you've all, you found one line that actually sums up the entire book. She was queen of the court and queen of the pivot, and the pivots included uh, becoming a spokesperson for integration. I haven't really talked about that in much depth, but let me just say that she wrote an editorial in the American Lawn Tennis, standing up to the all-male United States lawn tennis officials, saying in 1950, it's time to allow great players from the American Tennis League, which was the Black League, to play tennis. It's only a matter of time. Baseball had integrated two years before. They were just, if they were waiting, it was on them because it was going to happen and they might as well face the facts. And there's this woman who people are touting and they think is pretty darn good. Give her a chance. And if she's not good enough, someone else will be, you know, that doesn't matter, but give her a chance. And her editorial got them to allow the top male and female black player to automatically play in the nationals. The automatic part was a little cynical. That meant they didn't have to go to any of the qualifying matches at all white clubs, which are very important to learning who your opponents are going to be, who you can team up with in, in, in doubles profitably and who you might not want to. A lot of information you get by, from those qualifying tournaments, but they were not allowed to go to them because the uh, tennis establishment didn't want to take on total integration. But they did allow the Nationals. Althea Gibson, if people don't know her, I'm sure they do, because she's really standing the test of time in terms of being known. She didn't win the Nationals in 1950, but she did in 1951, becoming the first black person to do so. And in 1957, she won Wimbledon. So there was that aspect of Alice Marble. She was also the first woman to be a radio commentator about football. So there's that aspect. She was a torch singer. During some of her tennis career, she flirted with the idea of singing for a living and, in fact, did so at the Waldorf Astoria in New York City, which was then the ultimate symbol of capitalism and luxury in America. So much so that the wonderful poet Langston Hughes wrote a very long poem about the Waldorf Astoria, just showing the gap between what it stood for, the luxury, how it took care of its patrons, and 
the black people who weren't allowed in. It was a cultural, well-known place, historically as well, where she won over audiences with her very low voice. She said at one point, you know, I know my mother would get mad at me because I sing all these sad little tunes. So she sang the songs, you know, love. She, everything was about being love-struck at the Waldorf and other places. That lasted for a while, but and she also toyed with uh, becoming an actress. She was very good friends with Carol Lombard, who was the comedian of the 1930s, by far the most highly regarded actress over and over in that era, who eventually married the hottest guy of the era, Clark Gable. Carol Lombard died tragically at the very beginning of World War II. She volunteered to sell war bonds in her home state of I believe it's Illinois. <laughs> I don't think it's Indiana. I states, I know. I should keep them straight. Anyway, she raised some money and came back by, was coming back by plane to California. The plane crashed. So this person who'd actually been a patron, she was about seven or eight years older than Alice, truly an older sister who helped Alice with singing lessons, helped her learn the art of fashion. Uh, at one point when Alice was really struggling with illness and with teenage acne, she got her to a skin doctor. Now, this woman just kind of took care of her little sister, Alice. So when she died, it was a particular hardship for Alice. Her life was filled with many, many ups and downs. And that's what the story documents. It was not all one, you know, gilded ascent into the firmament of fame and fortune forever. She had to face some real, as we say now, issues in her life, including a lack of money for much of it, because amateur tennis players didn't get paid money back when she played. Her career ended abruptly because of what she called an inconvenient international event, World War II. So when the war is over and tennis is reinstated in the late 40s, 46, 47, she's no longer of you know, top-notch quality. And so she had to invent herself and reinvent herself over and over. She ended up moving back to California in the 1950s. And there she lived in L.A., and, but mostly in Palm Desert and Palm Springs, which is a, a sort of country club territory, tennis club, you know, lots of golf, lots of swimming. So it was a real sports-oriented community. And she did anything she could do to just kind of create cash flow, which included at one point being the pool attendant at her condo development. She got a um, license to be a bartender, so she sometimes served drinks at events. She taught tennis. Uh, at one point during that era, she worked for quite a few years as a receptionist, kind of doctor's aide in a doctor's office. She was basically a nurse, or a would-be nurse is probably the better way to put it. But she just did what she could to kind of create a living for herself. But at the end, she lived in a very unimposing little place with a cat named Frisky. She smoked cigarettes, which women did back in the 30s and 40s. They were sold it as a way to look glamorous and stay svelte. She never stopped, never gave up that habit. And the final years were actually pretty lonely, I think. Interrupted by, every now and again, uh, reporters, particularly feature writers from various newspapers. What's, what I always thought at one point when I was doing the research is I'm really amazed I was never sent to interview her because it would have been exactly the kind of story that the Herald would have wanted me to do had there been a Miami connection. She would talk to reporters, and she'd be at times engaging and sometimes wistful. She'd be go down memory lane pretty readily. But there was still a bit of, of something, I think, wistful about her, uh, especially towards the end. I want to say a couple of things, though, that as I, when I began my research, there were two things that people said, and they bookended in my mind. One is the first 
uh, well, my old colleague from uh, many newspaper days, David Marinus, always says, if you're writing a story, to go there. And so I went to San Francisco first to go to the library there and read some clips, but also to see where she grew up. And I went to the house where she lived as a child that her family had for quite a few years. And on the outside, there was a beautiful plaque with her name on it, indicating to me that the people who lived there were proud that she had lived there. There was a woman in the front yard, and I introduced myself, and she, her eyes lit up, and she said that she was newly married to her husband. He was They were not young, but anyway, she was newly married to him, and he was very appreciative of the house's ancestry. He is a Japanese-American who leads wine tours in Napa Valley. And she said, come up, come up. So I went up the 60 steps that she used to just bound up and down uh, during her entire childhood to her front door, was ushered in, given slippers, a beautiful cup of tea, and then the owner of the house showed me some of the memorabilia he'd collected over the years, photos of her, her picture when she was on Life magazine, taken by uh, Alfred Eisenstadt, who was one of the greatest photographers of the 20th century. Life magazine, one of the biggest media forces of the 20th century and the before the mid-century. Uh, and he stood there in her living room, which is what he called it, and he said that he was so proud that she had lived there, she fills the house with a good spirit. So I took that with me, a good spirit. And I really do think she was a good sport and a good spirit. A little later, not too much later in the interviewing, I talked to the woman who, Dale Leatherman, a wonderful person, who helped her Alice write her second memoir. So it was kind of as told to. And Dale said, you know, I have to tell you the truth. I was pretty close to her at the end of her life the last two years when we were trying to put this book together. And it wasn't always a pretty picture. She was really struggling and it was hard to see her in those struggles. And then she said, but you know, you know, she'd be smoking or maybe she'd have a little more alcohol than she should have or something and be a little bit in her cups. But she'd get an invitation to say, go to a lunch and talk about the old days. And the people organizing the lunch said, don't talk about how you cut calories or worked out. We want to hear about the kings and queens and the Hollywood types and just tell us stories. And according to Dale Leatherman, she would transform from this woman very content to be in just a house coat. Into, she would put on a crisp new outfit. She would go to these lunches where no smoking was allowed. And it, just that alone took 10 years off her face. And she would tell her stories. And what Dale Leatherman said was that she had this inner stamina, this resoluteness that was just amazing to observe. And the way Leatherman described it was, it was as if an old racehorse had heard the sound of a bugle. And I love that, thinking just this image of Alice Marble, no matter how disheveled her life had become, from the days of glory to living in this little place with a cat named, of course, Frisky, that she would still have something steely inside her, some resolve, as Leatherman had put it, that would cause her to stand up for herself and stand up for her past and her history and talk to these people and entertain them at their lunches. It's amazing. Um, throughout, I, th I think all of us were, were thinking the same thing, which is essentially if Alice had been a man, we would know her name way before, you know, like that's definitely something that, that you feel in this book. I've heard you talk about um, writing. I'm, I'm going to, you mentioned in a couple of moments or, or interviews about how um, if you yell, people can't hear you or there's something to the quiet, like the quieter the read, the better. So there's this idea of letting the story live 
and sort of showing these moments that you're talking about and you feel that throughout the book and just, you know, I think we all felt that and are, and are grateful for that and the, and this book. And I think, you know, everybody go listen to, to this read. Who are you going to be reading with? Can you, can you plug a little bit of the, of the 19th? I can't right now cause I don't have it in front of me, but I think they want us to, maybe it's because it's a panel to kind of talk it out rather than just read. So I'm not sure if I'll be reading or more having a conversation. That's amazing. You have one more question. Do you want one more question for, before we wrap up? It's not a question. You've been so generous uh, with, uh, I can listen to you forever and ever. So don't read, just talk on that reading. <laughs> uh, let them read. Because once you start reading this book, I was surprised. Uh, obviously, I really, the last time I played tennis was in 1976 or 77 when I was in college. I never played tennis again something that interested me and I just dropped it. And then I didn't know that this book, which by the way, I love the title queen of the court. It's very mm, <laughs> takes you everywhere. And it's more than just a tennis. It gives you the reality that there's this incredible athlete, right? That she was. And even the incredible athletes need that wisdom and the techniques and everything else that, that she was able to get to make her the star that she was. But at the same time, it was everything else, like I said at the beginning, everything else that happened in that time. And that you can sort of, what happened to me was that I read it and, and I sort of was there. And then I compared it to now and how many things are different and how many things are really just the same. So uh, thank you. Thank you for being here. And you have a captive audience among us where some of us are tennis players and our producer is actually a, a real tennis player. Yeah, <laughs> so I, we'll I got that it. feeling. I, I hope, I know you're going to be busy. I don't know if I'll see you face to face in Miami, but if I do, it would be wonderful. I want to thank you and your great team. <laughs> thank you. It was a lovely, lovely time. I learned so much reading this book in so, on so many levels. Oh, you are great. Thank you all of you. Thank you, you bye so bye. much. Bye. All of your success, she says, all the great things ahead. I'll be here when it's time.